I was singing those words, and I was thinking the word forever, and and you hear you hear like this the we in our hearts forever, or this person you know will remember them forever, and forever just kind of gets thrown away, cheap thrown thrown around cheaply, but. We have a forever kind of destiny, and that's what we've been talking about in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 to 3, we have this forever kind of thing, this destiny that God chose because he loved us so much. He, he chose us in, in Christ before the foundations of the world. He, he set his love on us that we would know him and because of his love toward us, even, that, even when we were rebels dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, Ephesians 1 to 3 has said, God has made us alive. What an amazing destiny we have, even though we were rebels toward him. He loved us and turned rebels into people that were reconciled to him. That's what Ephesians 1 to 3 has been about. He's put the Holy Spirit in us. That's why when we sing and we begin to resonate with the truth, resonate with Jesus, it's like the Holy Spirit is just taking up residence in us, saying Christ is amazing. Christ ought to be magnified in places like this and, and all around the world and in, in our hearts, in our gatherings. Christ ought to be magnified and the Holy Spirit's in us and he's in us securing us until we meet Jesus one day. He's the deposit, he's the guarantee until we meet him. That's what Ephesians 1 to 3 is all about. God has began a work doing a new creation. So Genesis 1 talks about God creating man, creating Adam, but then there's this new humanity that Ephesians tells us about, Ephesians 2 and 3, that has been created in Christ, bringing all of us together of every race, every nationality, every ethnicity has brought us together and we're one. We become a temple where God can dwell. We become a holy, holy dwelling place for the Lord. That's what God calls his church. We're reconciled to God, we're reconciled to each other, and that is all of what Ephesians 1 to 3 is about. The series title has been Becoming Who We Are. Well, that's who we are. And Ephesians 4 begins to shift that a little bit and begins to tell us this is what you need to become in light of who you already are. If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Ephesians 4 in light of everything that Jesus has done this is what we're looking at today. What should we do? So I'm going to ask Jim Manning to come up and, and read Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, really with this question in mind, in light of everything that Jesus has done, what should we do? Jim, read for us this morning. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking of the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Chapter 4 and verse 1, what Jim just read, is a question that ought to to be front and center for us. Do we give much thought to how Jesus wants us to live? So tomorrow, will you wake up giving much thought to how Jesus wants you to go about the day? So the wording there is to walk in a manner worthy of, of which you've been called. What does that look like? What does it look like for us to respond in such a way that we recognize all that Jesus has done for us and we live in praise and glory to him? What does that look like? Paul's going to unpack that. It's interesting in this chapter because I I feel like in our culture, we kind of put individuals first and then we kind of put the, the group or a collective sense second. But Paul's going to reverse that order. He's actually going to talk to the group, the church, first in this chapter. And then he's going to talk to individuals second. Lord willing, we'll cover that next week. When, when it comes to walking in a manner worthy of, of what we've been called, he's going to address the whole church. So, so we listen, not just as individuals, we listen as a body today. And, and, and the first place Paul goes in this walking in a, in a manner worthy of our calling The first place he goes is to recognize something very important, that is that Jesus has brought his church together. So then we have a call to make every effort to stay together. So this doesn't take high IQs to figure out, but this is what what the passage is saying. Jesus has brought his church together. So it's our task, our responsibility to make every effort to stay together. Paul begins by urging them. So even in the word urging is the idea of an urgency. So this isn't merely a couple suggestions he would like for us to consider. He is urging people that he cares a lot about. And by extension, our church family today, I'm urging you to walk in this way, walk in a way that you make every effort, according to verse 3, every effort to keep unity. In God's church, in the church family, every effort. And to make every effort to, to do our, our best, conscientious effort in, in obeying this, kind of highlights, especially in verse 2, some of the attitudes, kind of concentrates our attention on the attitudes and the actions that work toward unity. So in verse 2, He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Well, what is that? Well, you walk with all humility and gentleness. I don't know what you think of the quality of humility, but I know what first century Ephesus would have thought, and that is humility wouldn't have been something to be prized. It would have been something to be scorned. Actually, a virtue would have been, in that culture, like you make a name for yourself. You be important. You show why you matter. And Paul has something very countercultural to say. And that's as you, you, 
you esteem others better than yourselves. Not because you have a low self-esteem, but because you have the right esteem. You, you look on the needs of others. When you have that humility, it will translate into gentleness how you treat people. If you have the attitude of humility, it will, it will translate into, into being gentle with, with people instead of, of being harsh with them. And then he says, you're, you're walking in humility and gentleness with patience. And so patience is allowing for someone's shortcomings. It's, it's kind of asking the... the the question of yourself, is there any way possible to let this situation play out with me feeling like I need to immediately get angry because I've been done wrong, or I need to lash out in vengeance of some sort, or I need to demand my rights? Is there a way in which you could kind of take a step back, catch your breath, and go, I, I can be patient here because I understand this person, for a host of reasons, may not have been at their best. They may not have been directing this toward me. I may have misunderstood. So I can, I can be patient with people that I care about. And Paul's saying, if you want to walk worthy and you want to be a, a unified group, God has brought you together in Christ Jesus. So so you work hard to keep that togetherness that's going to require patience, enduring wrongs, bearing with one another. Even it says in, in verse 2, bearing with one another in love. And I easily will give myself a pass on this because I think, well, like bearing with one Okay, so that means I've just got to put up with idiots. I can put up with idiots. It's not fun. I can put up with people. Yeah, if they want to act that way. See, I'm bearing with... But we know, we know in our heart, we know in our heart that's not it. Especially when Paul says, you, you don't just like, put up with them. You're hanging in there with them. And you're doing it in love. And love always, love always demands that we be for the person, not against them. That, that is an essence of love. And that we're with them, not... not pulling ourselves away from them. And that we want to see God's direction and best in their lives, not that we could care less. And so we don't even get to kind of squirm our way out of what it means to bear with someone. We've got, we've got to hang in there. And all that presupposes, I mean, in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, it really does suppose that we are going to be close enough to where there might be friction. So quite frankly, we could live our lives distant from everybody. You could even experience church in such a way where you live pretty distant in relationships. But this presupposes actually that's not what God intends for us. He imagines us being close enough to where someone is going to have to exercise patience. Someone is going to have to bear with another person in love. Someone is going to have to treat me in a gentle way and I'm going to have to treat another person in a gentle way. It presupposes we're going to have relationships that are close enough to where there's going to be that friction. We're going to have to work through this. It comes from love. I think of all the sports movies that I've seen. I've seen a lot of them. I've seen a lot of them. Like the same movie lots of times because I love, I love it. And it always seems to, it always seems to be like the difficulty is a team that has disintegrated. But there's something that's pulling that team together. And then they go on and accomplish whatever they're meant to accomplish. God is calling us together. Even in the midst of the obstacles. We realize there are, there are dozens of things that could unravel the unity we feel. The unity we experience. 
So immediately afterwards, we would walk out in the parking lot and gossip about someone in our church family. In that moment, we just think we're, you know, they, they said something we didn't like. They didn't, they didn't address us when we walked by. We say something snotty. We say something snide. We feel quite justified in doing so. And in that moment, if we could got to hear sound effects, we would hear our unity unraveling, even as we've sung praise to the Lord. We could do it in mild ways. We could do it in big ways. We could, we could begin to grow bitter over someone. Every time we see him, we go, yeah. And we're filled with disgust. We despise them. We could do it when we're impatient, when we're, we, quickly, we quickly go to the device of, well, that's how they are. You know how they are. They always do that. And we don't. And we always have tried. And they always seem to. And we can do that. And in that moment, we are unraveling what Christ has brought together. We could be apathetic toward the whole thing. Well, I, I could really care less whether we're unified. I kind of like what I, what I get out of church, and that's really what it's all about. And Paul would say, wait a, wait a minute. Don't unravel that which Christ has brought together. Don't have such a heightened view of yourself and your own preferences that you put those above other people. And so... I wonder, do we have the same priority? Do we really want to be together in the same way Paul desires? Do we, do we feel the urgency that Paul has? Do we know that unity is central to God's plan for us? It's not like part of the luxury package, the optional package that like the, some people can get, but I'm just going to do kind of the general church package. Do we, do we, do we lean into this? Do we want to be together? And then the gears kind of kind of shifts gears because we're talking about relationships and then verses four to six talk about unity, but not so much in relationships, but in beliefs. So we have to remember the core things that brought us together, the core beliefs that brought us together. So in verses four to six, there are seven times Paul uses the word one. So there's one body. There's not many factions. There's one body. There's one gathering assembled around Jesus. There's one spirit who indwells us and animates God's activity in our lives. There's one hope, God bringing things together in Christ forever. There's not many hopes. There's one. There's not many lords. There's, there's Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We don't have many lords that we worship. We have one Lord that we worship. There's one faith. There's a, a common body of belief. There's one baptism. There's one entrance or identification with the community saying, I'm with Jesus Christ. I'm with his followers There's one baptism. There's one God and Father over us all. These things bring us together. So notice what Paul's doing, I think, is so critical. We are unified by the relationships we have and the attitudes that correspond with those relationships and the beliefs, the central things that we hold dear. These things bring us together. This is not a, it's certainly not a commercial, but it may be the right the right time to explain why we encourage membership. So lots of, lots of churches say different things about membership. But at Ogletown, quite simply, what we see when, when you say, I'm a member, it is a, a formal commitment that I am with you in these relationships and I'm with you in these beliefs. You say, well, Curtis, I attend. But, but the fact is, I'm going to look around, lots of people attend. Well, you say, well, Curtis, I attend a lot. And I, again, say, look around. Lots of people attend a lot. 
But, but when you say, when you take a step and say, I am, I'm committing to this kind of relationship with these people and these beliefs which we hold in common, it sends a clear signal. It's certainly not my job. I don't need to pressure and I don't need to manipulate. I do feel like it is my job to encourage you whether Ogletown's the place or whether it's one of the many fantastic churches in our area that you find yourself in a committed relationship where you can say, I can commit to these people, imperfect people, where I am going to have to show patience and gentleness and humility, and I can commit to these beliefs. I can commit to those things and be clearly united. So Paul is saying, you know, Christ has brought you together, so, so work hard to stay together. You have become one, but sometimes we can think, well, if we're all one, what about, what about the differences? I hear about unity, but what about diversity? And so Paul moves on in verse 7. You have your, your Bible there, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. So now we've kind of gone from being one to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there's unity, but that doesn't contradict the fact that there's diversity. When you read verses 8 to 10, it's, it's one of the more complicated places in Ephesians. A lot of ink has been you know, spilled over what exactly do these verses mean. I, I don't know that we're going to be able to get every nuance in every aspect, but we just take a few moments and try to understand what verses 8, 9, and 10 mean and how they fit into what Paul's talking about. So verse 8 begins with, therefore it says. So what is it? What is, what is saying this quote that Paul is going to reference? Well, it's, it's a quote from Psalm 68. The psalmist is saying, and, and so you go to Psalm 68 and you can read that this afternoon. Psalm 68 is like this victory celebration, this victory parade. God is victorious. He's conquered his enemies. He's brought his people out of bondage, out of slavery, into the promised land. And so it, it, get in your mind the picture of a, of a parade. There's a victor. And they've accomplished. And there's rewards. And there's, there's treasure. And, and in this case, there's a victor. And there's captives. And, and, and the victor is leading strong. He is one. He's, a, he's ascending to a place of prominence. And, and that prompts Paul to think about something and saying, well, he ascended... According to verse 9, what does it mean but that he also had to descend first? So before there was an ascending to this great victory parade, there had to be a descending. And Paul is tying this to Jesus. I was thinking about it even just a moment ago, and I'm, I'm so, so grateful Chris picked the song he did, the last song that we sang, because it really talked about this descent of Jesus, where the moon and the stars are even kind of turning away from the Lord. Because all the sin is upon him. I mean, we, we think about the descent of Jesus from the highest pinnacle of heaven. And he descends to earth. He takes on a human form in the manger. For all the way we'd like to spruce it up, it wasn't pretty. And the life that Jesus led in Nazareth wasn't gl- glamorous. And the, the teach he wasn't always accepted. It says he came to his own and they rejected him. And so we just see the descent of Jesus to this world, to this sinful world, where people didn't even know who he was and were mistreating. And then we find him being betrayed and denied. And we find him, the ultimate form of him descending. We find him going to the cross. And theologians call it the humiliation of Jesus. The Father turns away. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did you leave me? 
all that expresses the descent of Jesus. But then there's that moment, right? We sang about it, the ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. That perfect love could not, could not be overcome. And there we see the ascending of Jesus. We see him rising from the dead, conquering. I'm going to talk about captives. These captives are death and hell and sin and the grave and Satan. So forever he's glorified. He rises from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, the place of prominence. And one day he will come back and ruling and reigning. This is his ascension. This is what theologians would call his glorification. So we have his humiliation, his descent, and and he ascends. So what happens when Jesus ascends? What this passage says is when he ascends, you know, when you ascend power, you can kind of consolidate that power into self-aggrandizement or you can... You can give gifts. You can bless others because you have ascended to a place of power. And what Jesus does is he gives gifts to his people. Do you see what's going on? He, he descended, but now he's ascended. And in his ascension to his throne, forever he is lifted eye. Forever he is exalted. He gives gifts to his church. Verse 12 tells us what those gifts are. Those gifts are people. But they're people with a certain call and a commission. So in verse 12, it says, He gave. So, what are the gifts that He gave? He gave apostles and prophets, evangelists. Some translations say pastors, some say shepherds, same word, and teachers. You notice what those have in common. They take God's word, God's revealed word, and they, they give it to God's people. So the apostle is the one who heard from Jesus, saw Jesus, and revealed the truth about who Jesus was. The prophets were those people in, in the first century authenticating the message of this is true, this is God's word, in a place where they didn't have a, a Bible where they could read, a New Testament where they could figure out all the teachings of Jesus, the prophets authenticating. And then evangelists is almost like our modern day missionary that's taking the word and going into places where there is no gospel witness, where there's no messenger or, or, or church of Jesus Christ. And, and then there's the pastors who care for the flock, but they care for the flock by feeding the flock with the word. And then there are teachers who take God's word and through their gifts and their talents and their skill and their experience, they they share God's word in a way that's relevant and, and timely. And we think this is God's word. This is why God would say, my word is like bread and milk and meat. It's what feeds you. And God would say, my word in Psalm 119 is like a, a light shining on your life to guide you. And my word is like a, a sword in Hebrews 4 that pierces even to the thoughts and intents of what's going on in the heart, doing spiritual surgery inside of us. It's the word that makes us wise to salvation in 2 Timothy 3. God's, Jesus ascends and he gives gifts and those gifts are people and those people are taking God's word and delivering it to God's people. Saying this is authoritative. This is alive. This is what we listen to. Not my opinions, not someone else's ideas. We listen to the word. These apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers are given to equip, get them ready, get God's people ready. 
Because it's a dark world. It's a, it's a tough world. And, and God's people are, need to be equipped. And, and the goal of the, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, pastors and teachers, are to, to get God's people ready because there is a real war going on. It says in, in verse 12, to build up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith, to, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. That, that word is interesting, the word maturity. So kind of talked about unity, and now we're, we're looking at maturity. You see, Jesus has given gifts to his church in his victory so that we might keep moving toward Maturity. That's why he's given the gifts. My guess is there's several hundred people in the room. We probably have lots of different ideas about what maturity is, what spiritual maturity is. Is there any way to figure out and not just make stuff up about what spiritual maturity is? Is there any way to get at what, what does that mean? I mean, is spiritual maturity being nice? Is it being extra wise? Does it come when you're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70? Can, can a 20-year-old be spiritually mature? Does it require like knowing the, the answers that nobody else knows in the Bible study class or the small group where like nobody else knows the answer, but you know the answer and you have, you're able to read the deep theological books. Is that spiritual maturity? I mean, what, what is it? We get an idea of what it, what it is not. In verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. So the opposite of spiritual maturity to Paul, which is the goal which we're all headed, he wants us all to be headed towards spiritual maturity. The opposite of this would be that we're children. And while children are quite capable, they're also quite vulnerable. So no one denies the capabilities. But we also recognize children are are easily distracted, easily deceived, they're naive, they're susceptible to what sounds good and what might even feel good, but ultimately what, is, what, what could be destructive. They're unaware of the deadliness of following the wrong person, the wrong crowd, or the wrong teaching. They're unaware of that. Paul says, I don't want you to be that. I don't want you to be juvenile. I don't want you to be childish. But is there an objective standard that we could say for all of us, okay, this is what maturity looks like. I think it, Paul gives us one. The objective standard of maturity is none other than Jesus Christ. He's the standard. I mean, that's what Paul's saying. Let's, let's grow up in the knowledge of the Son of God. Let's, let's know Him. Uh, until we measure up, it says in, in verse 13, till we measure of the stature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What will it look like when we've reached maturity? It means we'll look more and more like Jesus. You think of Jesus. Jesus, one who knew the Father in a deep way, who loved God more deeply than any of us ever, ever will. The one who, maturity in Jesus' life meant he was able to give wise counsel, meant he was able to make wise decisions. Maturity in Jesus, he loved others well. He loved his neighbor as himself. He was able to respond even to immature people. It's a good idea what maturity is when we're able to respond to those who are immature. Jesus could read situations well. He was unselfish. He was content. Even in suffering and conflict and tension, Jesus didn't kind of lose himself. He was mature. He understood the big picture of what God is doing. He risked for the things that really mattered. 
As we grow more mature and we see Jesus, we'll recognize how much we need him and, and where we fall short, our own limits, we will begin to know, as Jesus did, what is not just right and what is true, but also what is good. And we will choose that. We will choose what is good. You know, mature people have the capacity and the capability to reproduce. As we're mature, we will reproduce our lives into the lives of others, especially those that are closest to us. So are we mature? Well, based on that, I would imagine there's a whole spectrum, isn't there? Of maturity and immaturity. And I think actually if we're doing church right and we're, we're reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ, we should expect there might be people that would be less mature and there would be people who have, have grown in their maturity. Not arrived, but have grown. The leaders of the church have a call to equip this. Not just keep the peace. Just as a parent wants their child to grow into maturity. Just as a trainer wants the person to be very capable and strong. Just as a counselor wants a client to make the right wise decision. We have those same impulses and that's what, that's what we are to be given. So a question would be, uh, a thought, the goal for all of us is to be moving toward maturity. So what should we be doing as a church? Well, we should be working hard to, to move all of us toward maturity. That should be the goal. Just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine going to, going to uh, some, some impulse makes you feel the need to get more physically fit. So you, you go to a gym and you meet, you meet a trainer. You schedule an appointment with a trainer. You schedule some sessions with that trainer and he or she meets you and they kind of begin to talk through their philosophy of training and fitness in that gym. And they say, we, we're glad you came and we want to accept you where you are. We want you to feel good about yourself. We know, like, life is hard, so we want you to really feel good, really feel confident. And we found that when you exercise a lot, you sweat, and that's uncomfortable. And you kind of feel pain, and, and, and it hurts the next few days. So what we like to do is, you like snow cones? Have a snow cone. And hey, why don't you, we've got the best recliners of any gym in the area. So we'd love for you to just sit and, you know, feel good about yourself with your snow cone. We've got a wide selection of movies or shows that can keep you entertained. And hey, in about an hour at the end, you'll feel so good about who you are. And we'll have had a part in that. And you'll be sitting around other people that feel good about themselves and just a great community here. Anybody knows? Oh, what kind of planet does that happen on? What kind of worthless trainer is that? But can I, can I push here that the church is not meant to just offer people spiritual snow cones? It may taste good for a moment. The, spirit, the, the church is not meant to just welcome everybody to a recliner where they just sit and watch the show go on. So a church that isn't pushing, and I, and I, don't, I don't mean 
just the services of the church. I, I mean the, all the interactions, all the gatherings in, inside rooms like this and outside rooms like this. And if the thrust of the church isn't, like we've, we've got to grow and to grow, it, it sometimes takes us to uncomfortable places like having to be patient with people we don't really want to be patient with and having to bear with others that we don't really want to bear with. And it takes us growing and growing to be more and more like Jesus. And and we can't sit on a recliner to do that. And we can't just eat snow cones and, and watch movies to do that. We can't just be entertained. Actually, it's going to take this, the whole body working. It's going to take all of us. That, that is what God is pushing us toward. Not just churches that make us feel comfortable. We need, as a church, to be a place where it is a spiritual workout. Certainly, places to encourage and comfort and heal. But we want to grow to be more like Jesus. We don't do that coasting. What does it take? Actually, the assignment isn't just for the apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Do you see verse 15? I just want to draw our attention to that. Verse 15 says, Rather, so we don't want to be like children. Mastering a few things of basic hygiene and a few skills. No, we want to grow up beyond that. Rather, speaking the truth in love. This is what we're supposed to do. We speak the truth in love so we can grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. That's all of us with which it is equipped. When each part, that's all of us, is working properly. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If leaders do their job, there's an environment. There's an environment where we're equipped to speak the truth in love. It's the same end game. We want to grow up into Christ. But our call is to speak the truth in love. And that's not like 20% of us. That's not... 50% of us, that is 100% of us, are called to speak the truth in love. And we hear that and maybe you think, well, that that just means you say like really hard things in a really nice way. Or you confront somebody, but you're really nice about it and you smile. That's that's that speaking speaking truth in love kind of thing. I'd say, I I don't want to limit it to... But but I I recognize that's a a piece of it, right? We, We do correct. We do warn. We see someone making a train wreck out of their lives. We don't love people well to go, not my problem. We lean into that, even sometimes when we're misunderstood. But it's more than just correcting, warning, admonishing. Speaking the truth in love happens when you give wise counsel. When you take the truth of God's word and someone's asking for your advice, you begin to take God's word and you apply it to their situation. Or what happens in classes and in groups all around Oiltown where there's truth spoken to each other and like no one has the corner on that market, right? No one has the corner on the market of truth. And so God has put his spirit, the spirit of truth in us and so we speak the truth to each other and it may happen actually in conversations afterwards where you, you feel motivated and pushed to, to grow in your faith and you're speaking the truth to each other or it may happen in, in back porches or dining rooms or, or living rooms. It may happen in one-to-one discussions in restaurants all over our area. But, but my question is, is it happening? Are, are there places in your life, are, are there regular rhythms of our church where we are experiencing community in such a way where we are opening our mouths and God's word's being shared. We're giving it and we're receiving it. It's so easy to just isolate. 
It's so easy to just assume my walk with God is none of anyone else's business. And while, while your walk with God is very personal, it's never meant to be private. 100% of the body has to be speaking the truth in love to each other. And maybe that's going to require your next wise step would be like digging in the word deeper because you're new to all this. Or maybe it's recognizing you don't really move toward people or the friendships you have are pretty surface and they just don't get deep or even the groups you're in don't seem to go a, a level deeper to where there's this opportunity to interact or, or maybe you, you need to pray, Lord, send someone in my, my life. I really don't have any context where I'm speaking the truth in love. I never grew up thinking church was something that I was, I was supposed to be involved in. It was a, rather a place I went. My prayer is that God would allow us to continue to grow in this area. That we get real comfortable that, that even, even by the time like December comes, six months from now, we will grow in this area of being comfortable with speaking the truth to each other in the love of Jesus Christ. Only he can make that happen. This beautiful picture, Christ brings his church together and he says, I've brought you together. I've created the unity. You make every effort to keep it. You get this beautiful picture of Christ descending and he, he gives gifts to his church. He says, keep moving toward maturity. Let's pray that God would let us do that. Can I ask you to bow your head? Father, help us to take the next good step in this. For my brothers and sisters in this room that struggle like they don't know exactly how to implement, but they, they feel the urge, their, their spirit is willing even as their flesh is somewhat weak, I pray that you would give them breakthroughs of how they, in their own way, with their own personality, can share your truth in love. Break down a mindset that would make us think that That's the work of a privileged few. Help us to move toward each other in love and in wisdom. Help help us as a body to grow in this area so that we begin to be built up to look more and more like your son, Jesus. We ask it all in his name. Amen.